Matthew 7, uh, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. It's amazing how Jesus kind of sums up the Sermon on the Mount. What Garrett read for us is the last line from the Sermon on the Mount, other than Matthew's summary of how the people were amazed at what Jesus said. You would think it would be something powerfully theological. Don't ever forget that the Lord is the great I am and that the fear of the Lord is the greatest thing that we need to hold on to. Don't ever forget that might be how you might end the greatest sermon that gets kind of put together for us by Matthew. It's not how he ends though. And in reality, it probably is even more powerful than one more theoretic kind of statement. The idea of the parable that we've all sung, right? Wise man and the foolish man, right? And our favorite part, of course, is not that the house holds firm. Our favorite part is that when the rains come, it goes all together now. Smash! That's exactly right. And we can do that with great exaggeration. If you've ever done it with preschool kids, especially if you can kind of get them in the habit, they will crush everything in that one, one thing. The point of the parable, Jesus says, is I've told you all these things, and I want you to believe not only in who I am and who God is, I want you to believe in what God has said. He, in reality, is pointing all the way back. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount will even include these lines of, you've heard it said, or God has commanded you before. He wants to include all those things, but also to include what he has brought to the table, which is a deeper understanding, an awareness that no matter how much we may try to look like we obey the law on the outside of our lives, that in reality, God is more interested in what's going on in our minds and our hearts. How are we letting God be the ruler of our lives, even at that base kind of level? And it is there, of course, that we all kind of as Jesus points out, we never quite reach the bar, do we? We make and say, I've never touched that or I've never done that. But when Jesus begins to say, but how is your heart? We all kind of have to wilt and understand that our righteousness cannot be our own. This closing paragraph, this closing statement of the Sermon on the Mount says this most powerful thing. Know who I am. Know my words. Know who God is, know his words, and it will do you no good if you don't, as it was in that translation of that, put it into action until you're ready to do it. So no matter how much Jesus says, yes, I can see that you can create some level of an image that you're creating your own righteousness by creating an outward conformity to the law, and even though he says, but that is, there is more to it than just creating that outward conformity. It's about an inward conformity. 
he still says that you need to take steps in your daily life. You need to make what you do be different because of what God says. Amen? I love my son-in-law. Some of y'all have gotten to meet Jason. If, uh, if you've ever texted with him, he's really good at, at creating these pictures of himself that come up as his identity. He does a great job of youth ministry in the uh, church in San Angelo, and we're really thankful for him. I appreciate him very much, and I consider him to be a very wise and he's less young than he was a few years ago, but still a wise young man. And you know that I primarily think he's a wise young man because he chose my daughter to get married to. Somebody say? That makes him very, very wise. I also recognize and want to affirm that he is a very faithful young man. He continues to, to not only hone his skill as a youth minister to teach young people, not just teaching them with words, but teaching them and how they do things together in service to the Lord and all those kinds of things. But it is powerful to see the way uh, his parenting style and the way he partners with my daughter in raising these three little girls and bringing them up in the love of the Lord. We get to sit through something every time we're there. They, they finish their evening meal and they have what they call the Creed Creed is a, a statement of faith and they talk about how they believe in God and that because they believe in God they believe that he made them and it and that it's not about what I do and it's not about who I am it's about who God is I am a beloved child of God and no one can take that away from me it's this great little verse the two-year-old can say it and they do it over and over again. Now, they are motivated very powerfully by the fact that there's a jar of M&Ms in the middle of the table. And you get your, you get your M&M, white M&Ms, uh, I think with a C on them, Creed C on them that they ordered. So you get that when you say it together. But I'm seeing wisdom and faithfulness in his life. But that doesn't mean that I agree with him about everything. We have an ongoing disagreement. In reality, he's wrong about something. Let's just be sure and just throw it out there. He is very, very wrong about this. You see, he believes that Chevrolet products are the most reliable and the, the one product. If you're going to hold on to an old car, it better be a Chevrolet because that's the only way it's going to keep running. And, of course, he's wrong about that. I have personal testimonies, and cars with many miles don't have one. Oh, I do have one now. That's right. It's just very different. I'm thinking of pickup trucks particularly, but uh, have had. And what I know and that what is true is that Ford is the car that is much more reliable and lasts much longer. And, by the way, is a company that didn't have to get bailed out by the government. But that's beside the point. Still mechanically, he's wrong. Chevrolets are not a better car than a Ford. Now, how in the world do two people that differ on this fundamental issue continue to live together? How do they decide that they can worship God together? How do they decide that they can be family together and not just family of blood and marriage, but family in God's kingdom? Isn't it interesting how quickly we say, oh, that's the silliest argument I've ever heard of. 
unless, of course, you own a broken-down Chevy and you knew that if you'd have bought in a four, the other, the other would have pertained. But isn't it also amazing how often we will let things maybe even less significant on which is a more reliable vehicle separate us from other people who love and follow Christ. Last spring, we dug into Romans, and we went from Romans 1 to chapter 11. We made that great uh, digging in process of those first eight chapters, and then we did our very best to say what needed to be said about 9 through 11, but not have to get hung up on it, right? If you've read Romans, you know what I'm talking about. But we have dug into this powerful piece of literature, this piece of literature that when we start putting the letters in the Bible in the order that we want to put them in, it is not only first because it's the longest, but I believe very quickly the church kind of held it up as one of the most important things that came from uh, the Pauline letters and all the other letters. It is a piece of, of, of work, uh, and, and I would say, I'm going to say this as well as I can, Yes, Paul is the author, but it's very clear that he's working together with Timothy and Silas, maybe even Luke himself, these common group of people who've been at work in his mission and who are doing their best to write these documents. They pool their ideas. They work very hard for them to weave together. I don't think you can read Romans and somehow or another see what so often we've mistakenly done, thinking about the literature of the Bible and thinking that God just grabs Paul by the hand and, he, and, and almost in his sleep he starts writing this letter. It is intricate, it is dense, and as Ozzie pointed out, it is a powerful. And you just turn each page and you come to a new powerful statement about what God is doing and what God has done. A statement of God's good news. Amen? As we pick up, we're going to look at the last four chapters of Romans. You may say, hmm, well, this will be a quick series. It'll be done with that as fast as we can. Especially if you've read Romans, you know that chapter 16 is just a, mostly a long list of greetings to different people. Not so fast. We're picking up in Romans chapter 12 through 16 and not simply celebrating God's good news, but we are living God's good news. And we're going to talk about the same things that Jesus was trying to impress on the people when he ended the Sermon on the Mount and said, so glad you heard, so glad you listened, so glad you believed. The question is, will you put things in motion? Will you do it as well as hear it? Paul and these missionary associates are working very hard to establish the foundations of God's good news in this letter. And while you could choose a hundred different verses to kind of unfold that if you wanted to in Romans itself without going anywhere else, I have chosen these to kind of summarize what they had to say. Again, that statement from chapter 3, and you heard it during the communion service, for there is no distinction or there is no difference since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He has spent two chapters making sure that we all stand in that same boat together. We all, maybe as those people who have sort of seen our lives lived out in trying to conform to what God wanted to do, we see that first chapter and we say, yes, those evil people out there. 
We're not Jews, but we are the people that see ourselves as established in God's will and, and understanding his word. But as fast as he will condemn the world that chooses not to know God or for whatever reason have not yet heard them in such a way as to touch their heart. And he says those folks have sinned. He turns the page and particularly in Romans will focus on the Jewish people who say, no, we've got all the right answers. And he says basically the same thing that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. I know you've got the right answers, but are you doing it? And in reality, no one is keeping the law perfectly. It seems also that before chapter 2 is done, he's also appealing to a group of people who might be intellectuals or philosophers who see their life as higher. And in reality, he also says, and, and you don't, just because you have a higher way of thinking, haven't gotten your life all straightened out either. He wants to be sure that when God enters the world, we all understand that we all share this common place that without Jesus, we are lost in sin. It's easy in the church for us to start to forget that if it weren't for Jesus, I wouldn't be right with God. Oh, no, 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 I get to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I do all these right things. But really the message has to be that we have to understand that without Jesus, we're no better. Without Jesus, our lives are just as lost as someone who has never responded. But we might also have to say that our lives are just as lost as people who we kind of stack up in, in our accounting of sin who do it all wrong. But in reality, without Jesus, there's nothing right about us to put our lives where they ought to be. In our Branding, those three little blocks, the last block. Who knows what the last block stands for? Anybody remember? Sharing our journey. Sharing our journey. And I think this powerful statement in that last little bit of our, if you want to call it a mission, if you want to just call it a logo, a theme, a, mo, a, a motif, that's the wrong word, a motto, there we go. But in that last block is this, is this realization and this affirmation that we recognize that our journey is not protect, perfected unless it's from the cross and the good news of God. Amen. And we're willing to share our own failings so that you might realize, you an outsider, that just because you have failings doesn't mean you're joining a group that doesn't also have shortcomings and brokenness. But Romans 3 will make sure that we transition from the truth of the reality of sin's pervasive effect on all lives to the recognition that therefore we have been justified, not because we're good enough, but we've been justified by faith. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through which we have gained access, how? By faith faith in this grace in which we now stand you can summarize it in lots and lots of different ways but ultimately what we have to say is i am 
right with God, not because I can make myself right with God, but because I've been made right with God, and I can only be made right with God because of what Jesus has done. Amen? And that Jesus is not something that I somehow or another was a good enough person to receive. Instead, it is a free gift from God. And this is not a statement just for people inside a church. This is a statement for every single person you encounter. Remember those folks that you ran into this week who didn't have any power at their house, who hadn't taken a hot shower in a while, and who got to the water shelf at HEB after it was already empty, and they exclaimed something less than positive. And you thought, how horrible. Well, the truth is that without Jesus, you're just like that person. But with Jesus, you are right with God. And guess what? That person can also be right with God through Jesus. Please say amen to that. But he points them towards a reality that's that's so, so powerful to a new way of living that isn't based on the rules of legalism, but is based on something what we might call new, the rule of the Spirit. It may well be that this has always kind of been the way of God's people. He uses several examples throughout the Old Testament of folks who who simply didn't know the law, but their lives were conformed to the law because they wanted to please God. They They weren't concerned about what the letters of the law were. They wanted to be faithful and please God, first among them being Abraham. Paul explains in in great, incredible, affirming, and encouraging words how your life does not have to be stuck in a place because you can't get all the details right. Your life can be liberated into what he calls the law of the Spirit. And that is to say that I will love God and I will seek God. I will love Jesus. I will know Jesus as well as I can. I will let his Spirit fill me and I want to be formed into anything that he wants to take me into. Yes, I will make mistakes, but I will never let the mistakes keep me from continuing to move forward to be the person that God wants me to be and to be part of God's community that wants to bring that real- those realities into the world at large. His primary goal is to affirm the basic idea, there is no distinction. This is not the idea that there is no difference between different kind of humans. That is to say, he recognizes, in fact, we'll talk about the fact that there are slaves and free. There are Jews and Gentiles. There are men and women. There are all kinds of different people. And he also doesn't mean by this that there is, a different, that there is no difference between people who've never known and responded to God. He's very clear about that. That without Jesus, we continue to live in the wrath of God because of sin. And not just because of somebody else's sin or the general brokenness of the world, but because I myself participate in that. Yes, there are distinctions between people who don't have God, people do have God. But within that, for all who have turned to Jesus and are justified by the same, they are all justified by the same grace and they live in the same faith or the process of believing Ultimately, they all stand in a relationship of trusting God. 
we have that opportunity to be part of this new unified body that as much as the creation, excuse me, that since the creation, sin and the fall of man has caused people to be separated, we get to live into a community that says there will no longer be things that separate us. For those who love God, for those who believe in Jesus, who those who have trust and put their faith in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, we want to be one. We want there to not be things that separate us. There is no distinction. To understand part of this, and again, we've talked about this last spring. I just need to bring these factors up again. I'm going to go backwards real quick. I'm going to go all the way to the end of the book, chapter 16, and I'm going to look at one of these greetings. You've probably heard of these people from the book of Acts. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I am thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches. Also, give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. It's very interesting if you read this list of greetings in chapter 16, you can count up at least five different distinct church homes or house churches that exist. And we don't need to think in terms of one or two or hundred people or thousands of people like we so often see in the churches today. Instead, we need to recognize that these were small churches that met in individual homes, maybe even in small apartments. The Jewish people that lived in Rome oftentimes lived in, in large groups like that. But they may have been in a, in a villa of someone of more prominence, but still you're not talking about more than 30 or 40, maybe 50 people that could gather together. And in reality, most of the time, it was just enough people that could fit around table together because the Lord's Supper wasn't something that we do that we kind of compartmentalize and give you a little individual set for. It was a meal, and it occurred as part of a meal, a celebration of the feast that would occur when Christ comes again or when we go into the kingdom of heaven. These people met in these little homes. If Rome was a city of a million people, it is well within the range of possibilities that Paul is writing to 100 to 150 Christian people in that entire city. And yet he believes, and what we know from history, is that they began to change the world. I don't know if you ever sit in a place and say, I just don't think that we can make any difference. There's just not enough influence here churches that Paul wrote to looked like much more of a minority in the world they lived in than you and I even are a minority in this city. These house churches were led by different kinds of people. And if you read in chapter 16 all these names that are there, and it's worth doing, it's, it's kind of a neat process, one of the things that you'll discover that's not necessarily self-evident just by the reading is that we have three different kinds of names here. First of all, the names, when they're recorded in English, have already made a transition through the language of Latin, which was the language of the Bible for about a full century before it got translated and in really into many other languages. For a while, they thought that the original texts were written in Latin, and they discovered that that wasn't true uh, fairly quickly. 
But in reality, those names have already kind of been changed. The sound of them has changed. The pronunciation has changed to all sort of sound Roman. But when you look at the original source of these names, what you discover is that Paul is greeting people, different people that have different names. Yes, there are some Romans there. You might recognize the name Rufus if you've heard much of the story of the history of Rome, and he's mentioned there. But Andronicus is definitively a Latin name in its very root and origin. In Aquila and Priscilla, you have two different names inside the same family. Aquila appears to be a Jewish name, someone who would have been named for, uh, so, that, so that his own name kind of reflected a, a Jewish heritage. Priscilla, on the other hand, was a Greek name. And as you go through the list, you keep running across these Roman names, these Hebrew names, and these Greek names. These names that Paul lists and wants to point to particularly, he says, greet them. We're going to come back to maybe the most important person that Paul greets, Phoebe, a little later in our series. But Paul is greeting not just churches that are Jewish. He's not just greeting churches that are Roman, not just greeting churches that are Greek, Hellenistic. He wants to greet all the churches. And if we go back into the beginning of the book and we recognize that one of the main themes is there is no difference, one of the reasons he makes sure and greets all these people from different places of different origins, ethnic origins, he wants to be sure and say, in God's sight, you are all the same. What's more important about you is that you've been saved through Jesus, amen? Is that you're under the grace of God, not about this ethnic distinctiveness. He greets these churches, all these different churches. Back up into chapter 15, we've got one more reason that Paul is writing this letter. We mentioned this when we started the last series, but I need to bring it up again. Starting with verse 22, this is the reason I was often hindered from coming to you. Paul says, I've wanted to get to Rome, but now there's nothing more to keep me in these regions, and I have for many years desired to come to you. Now, I need to understand that this is written before Paul makes his trip to Jerusalem and is arrested. He will get to Rome, but it'll take a lot longer, and it'll be in a very different kind of circumstance. And particularly, it's not a circumstance that reflects what he says next. I want to come to you because I want to get on my way to Spain. If you read some more details in the book, you recognize that he sees Spain as kind of an unevangelized place. The gospel hasn't gone there, and he doesn't want to build on other people's foundations. He instead wants to go someplace where it's fresh. And while he wants to come to Rome, his real purpose is that he needs to get to Spain. And he says, for I hope to visit you when I pass through, and here's the word, and that you will help me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. That help for Paul is not just the idea of patting me on the back. The idea here is that I'm going to need money. I'm going to need support to get to Spain. And Paul says, I want support from those of you who are Jewish in your ethnicity. I want support from those of you who are Roman in your ethnicity. 
And I want support from those of you who are Greek in your ethnicity. Because I want what you give to me to represent a unity in the cause of Christ that maybe isn't always evident in the way that you treat each other. I want that to change. And so he has written this book intending to have this conversation between Jews and Greeks, all who believe in Jesus, all who have put their trust in him, but are approaching how you live in very different ways. Remember historically, historically the whole book and the words there is no to strengthen have to be placed in the light of the historical fact that in 49 AD, before the letter was written, the Jews and Jewish Christians particularly were evicted from Rome for disturbances in the synagogues. Nero will come to power five years later, and whether it's an official reopening or it's just that Nero doesn't enforce the eviction, the Jews are coming back. The Jews who once led the churches, probably who churches that started in synagogues, those Jews have been replaced by very Gentile leaders, and that makes things different. We need to recognize that Romans is not just written to give us this beautiful expression of what God's grace, God's gospel is, and not just to celebrate that gospel, but it is speaking into churches that are divided. And it may well be that some of the house churches were intermingled and integrated, but it's at least a possibility that the individual house churches kind of had one ethnic kind of flavor to them. And he says, it doesn't matter how you're separated in different houses, you are all one church. Maybe that message needs to come to us as well. So I'm asking you to get ready for a very important phrase. A phrase that chapter 12 starts with. The phrase, therefore. Therefore is the word that opens up chapter 12. And while you can look at all of Paul's literature and you can find a therefore in there, this may be the most powerful one of all. Eugene Peterson, in his uh, paraphrase, uh, the message says it this way, So here's what I want you to do. And again, I want you to think back to Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We've got to find what Jesus, not just what Jesus says and who Jesus is, We've got to find what Jesus wants us to do. So how do we get ready for the therefore? I want to encourage you, first of all, to spend some time reading. And again, if I had to prioritize it, I would say I need you to be reading in chapters 12 through 16. It may well be that you'll find that a little less daunting than reading the first. But if you have time, after you've read 12 through 16, then pick up 1 through 11 and see if what you read in 1 through 11 doesn't sound a little different when you've heard what Paul wants us to do. The second is much more important. Sorry, reading is very important. I don't want us to put it that way. Instead, I think we have to get past reading into what I'm going to ask number two. Do you ever spend time examining your own heart about what separates one Christ follower from another? And by the way, 
we are separate. We are unique. Ozzie referred to it. Romans refers to it. Chapter 12 will talk about the fact that we are each gifted differently. And we need to express that giftedness in our own unique way, the way God has created us. What we're talking about here are the things that we say, I don't want to sit with that one. I don't want to be with that one. I don't want to eat with that one. I don't want to be considered a brother or sister in Christ with that one. What is it that we choose to let separate us? When we know that there are people who proclaim the gospel, we know that there are people who, who work to live in the law of the Spirit and make their lives conform to Christ, what is it that we choose to say, but no, they're not part of me, they're not part of mine? And we need to ask that question in a very serious way. Because what Paul will say before he's done, in reality before he's done with chapter 12, he will say that you can't be living in Christ the way that Christ wants you to live if you decide to let other people who follow Jesus and proclaim him be separate from you. He calls us to a unity that is radical because that unity is a testimony to God's good news. Finally, I want to ask you specifically to be praying. That God will speak to you individually in your own heart in this message about Christian community and Christian unity and overcoming and working through the differences that we have between us in a way that honors God and shares the gospel. And I want him to talk to you, but I ask that you will also pray that God will speak to us that God will change this church more and more into what he wants it to be so that we can be kingdom of God, followers of Christ, those who are representations of his good news. You may say, well, if they won't drive a Ford, then I don't know what I can do with them. And I'm glad you laughed. The bottom line is, I have to do work on my heart sometimes. And maybe you need to do work on your heart sometimes. Because it may be as simple as the difference between a Ford and a Chevy that you've drawn a line in the sand that separates fellowship and diminishes the power of the cross. God's good news continues to be because of Jesus... I will take you. Because of Jesus, I will take you from brokenness to wholeness. For because of Jesus, I will take you from sin and death to life. Because of Jesus, I will take you from a person who lives maybe without purpose and direction and give you the greatest purpose of all, to live for God. Because of Jesus, I will take you. If you're joining us on video later in the day, and you want to participate in a conversation that says, I want to hear more about this Jesus, you can text us at 979-217-3300. I encourage you to do that. Whether you come forward today or not, it is my prayer that you have a conversation today, that you respond to God's invitation to being someone who 
he more and more uses in his kingdom for his purpose. I don't know who you're going to talk to about that. Again, you'd be welcome to come. Talk to me and talk to the elders. But you're also welcome to talk to the person sitting next to you. Or pick up the phone with somebody you trust and say, I need to be more. No matter how, please, won't you come as we stand and sing. For the love of the Lord.